Thanks, everybody, and, and good morning. My name's Don Major, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm also a lazy alcoholic, which is probably the real reason that I'm sitting down. Now, I, I, uh, I blame that on my feet and knees on standing up a long time, but I expect laziness got a lot to do with it. So thank you all for tolerating my, my perceived need to sit down. And I am just really enjoying this weekend. Lord, I've got so many friends in Virginia. I, I told, uh, I guess it was Al last night that, that I think, last night at least, I think I knew uh, at least half the people that were here from my previous trips. And that's, that's just beautiful to feel so much a part of. And, and doing something with Bob is just such a joy. Uh, I love listening to him. In fact, I think what Bob just did, and he's not in here, so I won't give him the big head. Uh, I, I, I think what Bob just did was probably what I found personally the most enlightening thing I've ever heard him talk about. I, I thought it was just absolutely great. Um, and this format, which I expect Al is primarily responsible for putting together, um, is great for me. And I'm going to tell you why. I was thinking about this uh, just right before um, we opened the meeting. You know, I've told my story so many times. And I have sat by myself and gone through the steps in front of a group so many times that if I don't watch it, that becomes automatic. There certainly is, is no longer a great deal of pressure about that uh, because that just sort of comes out. But when you're doing it with somebody else like this, and when you're doing it in some format that's a little different from just going right down through the steps, it causes you to kind of reevaluate things, and that's a very good thing. It's sort of like going back and reading the big book. Um, I may have mentioned this last night. I may not have, but this is a very important thing to me, so if I mention it again, fine. Uh, I have a problem reading the big book because I already know what it says. And when I can make myself truly look at the ink on the paper, and Bob made a reference to this too uh, earlier this morning, when I can come to it as a little child, when I can come to that big book as a little child and truly try to look at the ink on the paper as if I had never seen it before and I don't already know what it says, it's amazing the things that I find out, the things that I've absolutely missed. And I expect it's the difference between knowing and realizing. I mentioned last night, I know, that in sobriety, words are really, really important to me because I have learned that what I name something or somebody is what that is going to be to me. Uh, if I name you totally obnoxious, and what you're doing with the traditions is awful, and it's going to destroy Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to get a bunch of people drunk, and somebody's got to do something, and it must be me. I am going to be miserable every time you cross my mind. On the other hand, if I name you a little bit eccentric, doing it your own way, and, you know, I wouldn't want to do it that way, but, heck, that may be getting some folks sober. I might get to where I enjoy your company. It's just what I name things. And that difference between knowing and realizing, <clears throat> I used to think those were the same things. But when I have realized something, you know, realize is a form of the word real. When I have realized it, that means that it has become real inside me. 
And that's a completely different animal from knowing the words, the realization of it. So <clears throat> that happens when I, can, when I can come to it as a little child. And I think that's one of the things that's so great about this weekend because it has caused me to approach things a different way. Uh, does it make me nervous uh, like I was or to the extent that I was when I first started giving talks? No. And let me tell you why. About two years into giving AA talks, it finally hit me that God was not about to trust me with the welfare of a room full of people. <laughs> that it doesn't make any difference what I do or say up here. If I make the biggest horse's butt in the world out of myself, it's going to be precisely what some of you need to see to help you on your spiritual journey. <laughs> So I'm not big enough and important enough that I can foul up or save a room full of people, and I know that. I'm just, I'm just a little messenger. In fact, uh, I know Bob remembers Creighton P. that used to talk around a lot. I think Creighton's still living, but he's not doesn't travel much anymore. <clears throat> Creighton used to open his talks with something that I just love. He would say, "Let me tell you about us circuit speakers, folks. We are not more sober than you are." We are not better members of Alcoholics Anonymous than you are. We are not more spiritual than you are. However, by and large, we are more enchanted with the sound of our own voices. Uh, but Bob and I uh, really enjoy doing these things together, and both of us are, are hoping that we get to do more of them. And one of the beauties of it is that... Uh, we feel like that we agree on just about everything with regard to the program, and yet we say it in different words. But, but Bob, I think I've found something that I may disagree with you on. Uh, Bob said this morning when he was talking about that obsession that blocks out God, that thing that we're really worshiping by obsessing on it that's taking up almost all the, all the graph here, the pie, pie graph. And he said, if there are any of you out there who have never done that, he wants you to be their sponsor. Well, I want you to re-examine whether you're in the right room or not. <laughs> However, if there is one of you out there who has been beaten to death by that all of your life and somehow has managed to escape the trap and doesn't do it anymore, please see me after the meeting. I need you desperately. Uh, <laughs> And my topic this morning, um, in a way, it's something that I feel like I could talk 60 seconds and tell you everything I know about it. Almost the title of my little talk here says everything there is to say, that I can act my way into right thinking, but I can't think my way into right acting. But right on the other hand, anything that I tell you about my recovery and really, I believe just about anything I can tell you about my disease goes back to that same thing. So what you're going to get out of me this morning is probably going to be considerably disorganized, and I expect that's going to be fine. And let me tell you that a lot of times over the years, I know that some people have walked away from listening to me, believing that I'm saying, stuff your feelings, doesn't make a bit of difference what you feel, don't worry about it, Ignore them. And I've never meant to say that. What I will say is first, I've never found any device nearly as effective 
for identifying my feelings and causing me to look at them and really recognize they're there as the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Most effective vehicle for doing that that I've ever found. What I am saying is that for me, building a shrine to my feelings didn't work too well. See, the first 37 years of my life, when I had a feeling, it was automatic that all of my behavior fell in behind my feeling, and it was also automatic that I went to work on you to get your behavior to fall in behind my feelings. Now, let me tell you how deeply ingrained in me this is. Without divine intervention, if I don't feel like doing the right thing, and I'm not talking about the way I was when I got here, guys. I'm talking about the way I am this morning without divine intervention. If I don't feel like doing the right thing, every fiber of my being concentrates on what we can do to get me fixed inside so I feel like doing right. It does not in nature occur to me to go on and do the right thing anyway. I want to do something like call one of you guys and worry you to death. I don't feel like going to work this morning. You know, what can I do to make myself feel like doing right so I can do right? Uh, and I want to tell you that over the years of sobriety, almost 26 years now, I have prayed until I was blue in the face for God to fix me inside and make me feel like doing right so I could do right. I have done enough inventories that if we were to stack them up and I was standing up, they'd probably come to somewhere between my knee and my hip from the floor, you know, stacking them up. I have worried sponsors to distraction talking about that. Uh, I have dominated discussion meetings talking about what can we do to get me fixed inside so I will feel like doing right and then I can do right. And I have spent a few thousand dollars on outside counseling to get me to feel like doing right so I could do right. And I'm now going to give share with you one of the worst pieces of news that I personally have ever heard in my life. With all of those things that I've done in the last 25 and a half years, not one single time has anything made me feel like doing right except going on and doing right when I don't feel like it. And that is just almost more maturity than I can absolutely stand. I just absolute hate that it's that way. There's got to be some way we can get inside me and adjust my insides, you know, and, and make me feel like doing right. See, all my life, <clears throat> I thought the difference between good people and me was that they felt like doing right. And if we could get me fixed so I felt like doing right like they did, I'd do right like they did. I know now that those people may not have felt a bit more like doing right than I did. They just went on and did, did right. And you know what? That made them good people. And I may have felt just as strongly that I needed to do right as they did, and I didn't. And you know what? That made me bad people. I very much am the sum total of my actions today. You know, it's not too far from here that, uh, that uh, Robert E. Lee surrendered to, uh, to General Bryant. Did you ever notice that nowhere in the history books do we have what was going through General Lee's mind? 
You know, Lee may have been thinking, I'm going to give this sword to this Yankee bastard, but then I'm going to give me a bunch of vigilantes and I'm going to burn his house <laughs> to the ground. The only important thing is Lee's action of surrender. That's all that went into the record books. It's irrelevant what went through his mind. There's a story from a great big old book that is not conference-approved material, and it's about this fellow that uh, had some really powerful powers, and, and it seems like he healed a group of lepers, uh, several lepers, and uh, all of them started to run off. They were so glad to be rid of their leprosy that they just started to run off to get back to their lives, except one. One came back and thanked him. And, you know, I've looked and looked in that big old book for where it tells me what all of them were thinking and feeling. But it's not in there. For all we know, the ones that ran off <coughs> may have been thinking, you know, this guy that heals me, healed me, he's God. This guy that heals me is such a wonderful person that it can't possibly be of any importance to him whether I stopped and thank him or not. And certainly he knows my heart. He knows that I'm thankful. And I need to get back to my family and my work. I've got important things to do. Man, I've lost ground with this leprosy. The one that went back may very well have run a few steps and thought, I don't want to go back and thank that SOB, but if I don't, my leprosy might come back. <laughs> the only thing that was worth writing down was that he went back and the others left. So you see, without divine intervention, I've always got it exactly backwards. So I expect I'm going to be talking <clears throat> an awful lot about just uh, just feelings versus thoughts rather than the acting as if, but it'll probably amount to the same thing. And Bob talked about something. By the way, when you were out of the room, Bob, I said I thought that was the best talk I've ever heard you give, and I saw some heads nodding out here. Um, he talked about... <clears throat> trying to fill up that hole in himself with the motorcycle, the car, the woman, you know, all the, the new job, all those things. <clears throat> I used to hear that put away, that, uh, put in words that I almost never hear anymore. And they're really important words to me. I used to hear a lot that if I let my comfort depend on people, places, and things, I am going to be uncomfortable. Period, end of statement, no play, you know, that's just the way it is. When I first heard that, I thought I understood it. I said, oh, yeah, that's right. Because if I let my comfort depend on people, places, and things, they may not work out the way I want them to, and then I'll be uncomfortable. That's not what it means at all. If I let my comfort depend on people, places, and things, that is the spiritual mistake. If I let my comfort depend on those things, there is nothing the people, places, and things can do that will make me okay. If they are moving into the very configuration that was my dream configuration of what they ought to be, before they get fully settled in it, I will have changed what I want them to do. <laughs> and, and I believe with me that's a spiritual absolute. If I let my comfort depend on those things, it doesn't make any difference what they do. I'm going to be uncomfortable. You know, it so much boils down to action with me. And we, Cliff and some of us were talking about this outside uh, after Bob's talk. One of the most important things that I ever heard for me, and I don't remember who said it. I heard it in a discussion meeting early in sobriety.
was, you know, the only way on earth you turn a toothache over to God is you go to a dentist. So if you don't believe it, next time you get a toothache, pray, do an inventory, and call your sponsor and go to a couple of meetings. See, I want, I want all these metaphysical things to be happening inside my brain and my soul and, and all these great movements to be the difference on things. And they never are. They're the little insignificant actions and the failure to do the little insignificant actions. That's always where the reality it is. Another thing that tells me how deeply ingrained it is uh, in me that my thoughts, feelings, and beliefs are the center of everything. See, that's at the core of, of this disordered ego of mine, is this insane conviction that what I think, feel, and believe is the ultimate reality. And if we're going to change anything, we've got to get it fixed so I can then change the outside. And uh, my buddy Bird, I don't know where Bird's off to. He may have decided he's heard enough of this. I don't know. Uh, but my buddy Bird that, uh, that rode over with me uh, has been... Uh, my dearest friend, or one of my couple of dearest friends for years and years, and uh, we uh, in Louisville will occasionally do this. We will draw the other one up short when we ask, as we do all the time, hey, how you doing? We invariably ask with answer with how we're feeling. Invariably. We ask one another how you doing, and what we get is how you feeling. And what we go best spurts do in Louisville is stop the other one and say, wait a minute. If I want to know how you're feeling, I will ask you. I have asked you how you're doing. Answer the question for me, please. And it is generally an entirely different answer than the answer that they answered. It. See, I think it's all absolutely at the center. Of, uh, I think everything centers in this feeling. Give you another example of it. And I must have been four or five years sober before the light came on on this one. You know, you don't have to sit around meetings too long before you hear some clown pipe up and say, My worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. Every time I would hear that, I'd want to crawl under the table. Because I want to tell you, it didn't seem like to me that my worst day sober was anywhere near my best day drunk. I had some pretty good days drunk. Early on. Finally, it hit me. I wasn't hearing what they were saying. I'm so zeroed in that everything is about how I feel. That what I was hearing them say, I was hearing them say, I feel better on my worst day sober than I felt on my best day drunk, and ain't nobody ever felt better on their worst day sober than they felt on their best day drunk. I know now that what they're saying is that my worst day sober is a better, more valuable, more valid day than my best day drunk. Consequently, I can look you in the eye this morning and tell you, yes, my worst day sober is a better day than my best day drunk because I finally got it off that dime of being all about my feelings. The same thing I told you later, the ones that were here last night, <clears throat> I have boiled my alcoholism, that ego disorder that causes selfishness and self-centeredness to be the root of my troubles, I've boiled it down to, to simply this. Without divine intervention, I will always let how I feel 
be the most important thing in the world to me. I have to have divine intervention to keep to, to prevent how I feel being the most important thing in the world to me. Um, I was confused about things like gratitude and faith and attitude on account of that too. And let's talk about attitude. Bob's talked about that some. He talked about that the uh, the definition dictionary-wise of, of attitude is angle of approach. <clears throat> well, my original sponsor, Cherry Carpenter, sent me to a particular dictionary when I was in very early sobriety to look up attitude because I was panicking. I was hearing everybody telling me, you got to change your attitude. Well, I had always, the only definition I ever had of attitude was it's my mindset. You know, it's the way I feel and think about something. Hey, my angle of approach to something is how I act toward it. My angle of approach to you this morning doesn't have a thing to do with what I might be feeling or thinking about you. My angle of approach is how I act toward you. And think just a minute about the magic of that. And I mean magic. Because once I realized that, once that became real to me, my attitude instantaneously went from something totally beyond my control to something totally within my control. And, of course, the magic always happens. If I treat you, if I come at you, act toward you with an angle of approach of being respectful and loving and non-judgmental of you, I wind up feeling that way. But if I keep waiting for God to fix my feelings toward you before I start acting that way, it ain't ever going to happen. <clears throat> As I said, I was confused about things like faith and, and gratitude. Uh, I thought that that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that God's got me in the palm of his or her hands and that everything is okay was faith. That's not faith. There's absolutely no spiritual value in feeling that way. That's just comfortable for me. That's the reward for faith. Faith is the very uncomfortable process of when my brain is screaming at me that if I do it the way I know in my heart is right instead of the way my brain tells me it ought to do to take care of me, faith is taking that next stitch in the right place instead of where my brain wants me to take it. You know, <clears throat> when I first began to become awake to spiritual things, and to me, that's all a spiritual awakening is. It's quite literal. I was comatose to spiritual things. When I first began to become awake to spiritual things, I thought the enemy of the next right thing would generally be things like lust and greed, and it is about 1% of the time. 99% of the time it's fear. It's fear. It's fear that if I see a little spark of the divine in me, and it's the only glimpse of God's will I ever get. God doesn't give me God's will for me five seconds from now, much less next Tuesday. The only glimpse of God's will I ever get is in the right now. <clears throat> and I don't, I'll just explain what I mean by that. We all assume that it'll be God's will for me to be up here droning on and you guys sitting there five seconds from now. But in the next five seconds, any one of us could have a heart attack, a stroke, or a seizure. Uh, 
fire alarm could go off, if there were a sprinkler system, it could go off. Uh, a wet drunk could come storming in here raising sand. The police could come in here looking for one of us that hadn't quite done our amends. Uh, <laughs> the airplane could fly into the building. <coughs> there, 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 there's an endless number of things that could totally change what we are convinced God's will is going to be five seconds from now. The only glimpse that I ever get is that little spark of the divine that tells me where to take the next stitch. And I'll talk about that in 6 and 7 today uh, because that's very connected with my 6 and 7 deal. But uh, at any rate, that faith is that scary, uncomfortable taking the next stitch or the next step in the right place when my brains tell me, hey, Don, you're going to lose something you don't, don't want to lose if you do right or you're not going to get something you really want if you do right. That's faith. That nice, warm feeling, that's the reward for faith. Same thing with gratitude. You know, it's a wonderful, comfortable feeling. When I am having the feeling that I am really acutely aware of how blessed I am to even be alive, when I do the math and figure out the odds of me being alive today, the odds against it are greater than the odds against me winning Powerball. Truly, truly, when I take all the days that have come and gone before I came into existence and all the ones that will come and go after I'm gone, I have less chance of being alive today, able to see you, talk to you, taste, smell, live, love, than I have a winning Powerball. And on those days when I can really feel that, man, it's a gift. I feel great. But that's not gratitude. That's the reward for gratitude. Gratitude is somebody when somebody that I really don't like. Now, I love everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I'm not going to tell you I like everybody around me. And I don't dislike a whole lot of people. But it seems like that an inordinate ones of the ones that I don't particularly prefer seem to think I have something they want. And... <laughs> That when I'm really busy with things that have got to be done, because now I've got this disease of big deals, and I have a lot of big deals, because a lot of things have to do with me. And without divine intervention, anything that's got to do with me, I'm going to blow up to be in, into a big deal. And I'm into my big deals, and I've got other things to do. And this guy that I just really hate to talk to, his breath doesn't smell very good. He's got these physical mannerisms that just make me want to jump out of my chair, for God's sake. It's making myself pray those magic prayers. Thy will be done. I'm no longer running the show. Lord, please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand Jim rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood by him. Let God do the magic through those prayers. And you know, the, some of the magic those prayers do, the first magic thing they do is they turn me into what I am not. They make me a listener. And before long, I, I began to realize and I began to remember what Chuck C. says, that whatever I give my entire interest, attention, and love to will become the most interesting thing on earth for that moment. And when I run those prayers and I sit there and I talk to Jill, when I started out not wanting to do it, that is gratitude. That is being grateful for what I've given in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I get up and go to the meeting, when I, because I know that a guy is expecting me to be there to give him a token or something, I'm just way too busy to do it. There's no question I'm way too busy to do it. And nobody on earth could criticize me 
for flaking out under those circumstances, going on and doing it. Getting to the meeting early, making coffee, doing what Al and, and Alex and so and Allison and, and so many of the rest of you have done this weekend in getting this together. I'm sure they did a lot of things you folks didn't feel like doing at the particular time you did it. But that's gratitude. So for me, I need to look at things like faith and gratitude and attitude. I guess you would say it's more verbs than nouns. It's never so much about what or who I am. It's about what I do. And see, I want to make it about what or who I am. And the truth is, what and who I am is nothing more or less than the sum total of what I have done. That's all I can ever be, I believe, with all my heart. Talk, by the way, uh, uh, insanity. Bob was talking about the second step of the insanity. And, and, and I, my eyes just kind of plays over when we get into the area about people having trouble accepting that they were insane. My God, that was one of the things I was proudest of. And, and, it, uh, it, and it was so far preferable to just plain old garden variety alcoholism that, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, just didn't have a problem with insanity. But... One time when I was in the asylum, and I, I mentioned last night, I, I was in the asylum 18 times in two and a half years. Uh, and this was a really nice asylum. It was down in Montgomery, Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. Uh, and I was there 42 days. I remember that. I had a counselor named Hattie, a lovely lady. And uh, there were Marlise Mar- Mar- and Dinah were a couple of ladies in the asylum there with me. And they would give us passes. And we'd go out, you know, uh, on the town together. And I'd drink Perrier, you know. And we'd, uh, Marlise and Dinah weren't in there for alcoholism. They were just in there for garden variety crazy. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it was nice asylum. But, but sometimes, and I'll tell, let me tell you how well that asylum worked. Uh, at the end of, by that time I was homeless. Uh, but I just had that Blue Cross Blue Shield card left, like Bob was talking about the John. All he had left was his, his medical insurance, and the other people were paying that for me. But uh, I got discharged from that. I didn't have any clothes. Uh, and, and Hattie had a brother-in-law who was only about four inches taller than I was. And he had a blue and white, big, very loud plaid suit that he didn't want anymore. So Hattie brought me that blue and white plaid suit that was four inches too long for me. And she took me over to the bus station where I was going to take a bus over to my sister's in Panama City, Florida. I hugged Hattie and we cried. And, of course, they'd given me a bottle of uh, 100 of those 10 milligram Valium before I left the asylum there. <coughs> and... Hattie pulled off and started around the corner, and I'm sitting there wiping and start waving at Hattie. Soon as she got around the corner, went across the street, got two pints of vodka, had to carry me off the bus when I got to Panama City. Uh, but but my, my, my point about that asylum is that sometime while I was in there, and I honestly do not remember whether it was one of the staff members or another inmate, but somebody said to me, you know, Don, they don't put you in the asylum for being crazy. And I said, they put me in here for being crazy. And they said, no, they put you in here for acting crazy. I said, I'll tell you something else. They don't let you out of the asylum for being sane. They let you out of the asylum for acting sane. And by that time, I'd gotten out of half a dozen asylums when I knew I was nuts by acting sane. So that began to sink in. Let me tell you the importance of that in my life today. <clears throat> I really don't panic when I'm crazy, when I feel crazy. 
And because to me, feeling crazy is not being crazy. I have found out that feeling crazy is uncomfortable as the devil. But it won't hurt anything unless I act crazy. If I feel crazy but can refrain from acting crazy, I'll get over it and it'll be funny that I was crazy. (laughs) But you let me act crazy. And sometimes it doesn't ever get funny. It doesn't ever, ever get funny. So I judge my sanity and insanity today not by my mind and my feelings. I judge it by my behavior. I believe that I can feel like I'm the most centered, sane guy in the universe. And if I am repeatedly doing something that I know is not in my best interest or the best interest of those around me, I think I'm crazy as a loon, regardless of the fact that I think I'm so solidly centered. Um, Another thing that I had badly confused thinking it was a feeling in a mindset is forgiveness. Bird and I were talking about forgiveness uh, for some reason on the way over here from the hotel this morning. And uh, one thing I'll say about forgiveness, I, I have long known that I don't really have to forgive everything to stay sober. If I'm willing to be uncomfortable, I can almost surely not forgive things like cutting me off in traffic. I cannot forgive little personal slights if I'm willing to pay the spiritual price. And sometimes that spiritual price is is great out of all proportion to those little things. But I can probably do that and live. The only things that I've got to forgive if I'm going to live are the unforgivable. Those are the only things that I must forgive are the unforgivable. I thought that was impossible. And when that began to be brought home with me, I'll tell you first, and, and my daughter Dana knows I talk about this. Uh, my daughter Dana was, was severely sexually molested by family members from age 4 to age 11. I didn't find out about it until after she was sober, uh, or after I was sober a couple of years. I'm glad I didn't because I've always been a criminal defense lawyer and I've always... I always had connections with people that uh, had very little moral compunction about what they would do, either to money or to, or to curry favor with me. And I'm very glad that I was sober because something might have happened that I couldn't have lived with otherwise. Uh, but when I was about 10 years sober, um, a family member involved in that was on what everybody, including the doctors, believed to be a deathbed. And that family member sent for me to come to that bed. And I felt like I couldn't go. I felt like it would be a betrayal of Dana. I felt like it would be the height of hypocrisy. I felt like I just couldn't go. But that didn't sit right. There was something that it, it gnawed at the insides. It just gnawed at it. So I started praying. I started talking to people. And let me tell you what became clear to me. What I realized. I began to realize what the words of the Lord's Prayer say. Like all of you, I could have quoted that prayer backwards. I knew what every word was in there. But I began to realize that that prayer that I say with you folks all the time, holding your hands, ask my God to forgive me by just precisely the same standard by which I forgive my fellow man. And I won't tell you, I'm way too far gone to put any limitations on my God's forgiveness of me. Way too far gone.
Then the next thing that hit my mind when it got clear to me that I should not limit the forgiveness and it also got clear to me that if I'm a great, wonderful, forgiving person up to an extremely generous point, but damn you if you step your toe over that line, I'll not try to forgive you. I'm not partially forgiving. I am a totally unforgiving person because I have reserved to myself what I'm willing to forgive and what I've not. Kind of like the AA code. You know, the AA code is love and tolerance of others. I had tolerance confused with, uh, with a high threshold for aggravation. Um, and I thought if what you did mildly irritated me, but I could slough it off, that was tolerance. Tolerance is not even an issue until I find you intolerable. Until everything in me screams, my God, I've got to do something. This is awful. The universe is going to collapse if I don't straighten him out. That's the only time that tolerance becomes an issue. But at any rate, after it got clear to me that I ought to go to that bedside, then the next issue was the big H, hypocrisy. And alcoholics are, are peculiar, I believe, about hypocrisy. Um, you know, after we've done our inventories and been sober a while, we can get some 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 really good taste uh, uh, and subtle humor out of past uh, old larceny, adultery, and 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 even if a homicide is far enough going long enough away, we can get a little tasteful lift to the corner of the mouth out of that. But by God, we don't want to be hypocrites. Uh, <laughs> And let me tell you what then became clear to me. You know, it would be nice if God is somewhere in this great universe and God's thoughts and feelings about Don are totally forgiving and loving. And that God truly is not bothered at all by any of the bad behavior that I've done. And God, it is, it is God's pleasure to give me all the gifts that God has given me. That would be a wonderful thing. On the other hand, if God is somewhere in this universe and is thinking, I don't know why I made him. He has always pissed me off. I can't stand him. His behavior is just absolutely abominable. And I wouldn't enjoy anything any more than squishing him like a damn bug. But after all, I'm God. And I've got to act like I forgive the clown. So I'm going to go ahead and act like I forgive him and give him all these things. I'm just fine. I'm in exactly the same spot I would have been if God had felt like doing all those things. So you see, if I act out the forgiveness and God gives me precisely what I gave you, I'll be just fine. Because it's not based on what either God or I are thinking, feeling, or believing. It's simply based on what we are doing. Uh, let me talk about action with regard to the steps for a minute. Um, something that helped me so much early on was that uh, I was told that the steps are the prescription for alcoholism. I was told that they work on alcoholism the same way that an antibiotic works on an infection. I was told that if I had an infection that was going to kill me if it wasn't treated, but would respond to penicillin, I didn't need to go to the library and bone up on my infection. I didn't need to talk to all my friends about the details of my infection. 
I didn't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin worked in the human body. I didn't even need to believe that that little bottle of pills could take care of all those terrible things wrong with magnificent me. And here's the kicker. I didn't even need to want to take the pills. If I had the infection and I took the pills as directed, I'd get just fine, thank you. And they explained to me that these steps work on alcoholism just precisely the same way. Uh, step one. You know, if I had waited for a good day to stop drinking, I would have been rotting in a pauper's grave for over 25 years. And Bob's talked about this weekend. Uh, and, and I actually got to give credit to Dana, the daughter that I've talked about some of you folks told. Dana came up with this. She actually said it with regard to smoking. But she and I immediately realized that it applies to drinking. In the whole history of the universe, there ain't ever been a good day to quit drinking. You know, if you're going to wait till a good day to quit drinking, when you've got this crap off, you may be, my God, nobody can stop today with all this pressure on and that sort of thing. Or maybe something good going on. You, certainly I can't stop with this big football game coming up, you know, or, or Christmas, for God's sake, or my birthday, or, or my, till I get through this divorce, man, and nobody can stop under these circumstances. Uh, ain't no good day to stop drinking. You know, if I'd kept waiting until it felt like it was a good day to start drinking, to get it through my head that none of you were going to knock it out of my hand, and I was going to have to do the most mature, the only mature things I'd ever done in my life, and do it on a really bad day to stop, I would have been laying in that grave. Uh, second step, so much of my second step is just exactly the acting as if. I uh, told told you during my story last night how allergic to the God thing I was. I mean, it just, Lord, it ticked me off. And you guys talking about higher power made me even madder because I knew exactly what you were talking about, trying to backdoor me with the God crap, and it would make the little hairs stand up on the back of my neck and insult my intellect and run me out the doors. Uh, I was just absolutely allergic to the God thing. And I tried for two and a half years to get some adjustments made inside about me. I could, I could change anything. I'm not talking about I couldn't quite get there. I couldn't change anything, period. Finally, when God gave me the gift that I hadn't even asked for, of a little teachability or humility, the willingness to go ahead and act like I would act, if I believed there was a possibility that there was a power out there that could get me out of that humanly hopeless dilemma that I was in. When I started doing that, started getting on my knees and saying words I didn't believe to something I didn't believe was there, it began to work. It's always the action. If I keep waiting, you know, I'm not sure whether psychiatry has done it to us, and I'm not being critical of, of psychoanalysis or any of that, but I believe one of the most dangerous and deadly myths in our society is the myth that if I can somehow just figure out what's wrong with me, magically it won't be wrong anymore. And I believe that that's just an absolute myth. I believe, in fact, that if I figure out what's wrong with me and fail to take the action to correct it, that I am in worse shape. I don't think I'm not in any better shape. I think I'm in worse shape than I was before I knew what the solution was and wasn't doing anything about it. Um, third step. Um, the implementation of the third step. 
you know, it's just a decision, and, and neither of us have actually got the third, neither Bob and I have got the third step on our agenda this weekend, but, but it's vital and crucial. And I did want to say one thing. Bob was talking last night about somebody, about him talking to somebody as he was getting sober about the third step prayer on page 63. I want to make a comment about that. It's not particularly related to the subject, but, you know, the, the, the whole tone of the book of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, has got some really good themes in it, like trying not to be controversial. That's why Bill never calls alcoholism a disease. In the first 164 pages, he never calls it a disease. Certainly he believed it was a disease, but that was more controversial then than it is now. So rather than getting on his soapbox, he, he figured, you know, I can communicate everything I need to communicate by calling this an illness, malady, disorder, and so on, without stirring up the controversy. If he'd called it a disease... Alcoholics Anonymous might have fallen on its face. That might have stirred up enough resistance to that book that we might not be here today. But uh, uh, my goodness, I've lost my train of thought. Imagine that. <laughs> what was I talking about? Third step prayer. Oh, yeah, third step prayer, page sixty-three. <laughs> it, uh, uh, another theme of that book is not ever being dictatorial and claiming to be the only way. And, and I really believe that. I, I don't claim the big book's the only way to stay sober. I just know it's the only way I've ever been able to do it. And from my own observation, that appears to be true of loads and loads of other folks. But I truly do not make the statement the big book is the only way to stay sober. But with regard to the third step prayer, it says that you can go in the room with that understanding person. And by the way, since we always have understanding people today, that part about doing it alone no longer applies to us. Uh, we go in with an understanding person and we say the thoughts of the prayer on page 63. In fact, the way Bill puts it, of course the wording was quite optional. What on earth would possess me to use the same brain that had destroyed everything in my life to improve on the third step prayer? <laughs> What kind of insanity would come over me to try to do that, for God's sake? I'm just going to talk a few more minutes that I'm going to sit down here. By the way, when Bill's talking about the action in the third step, he uses a couple of literary devices that he uses a lot. He tells us that this self-centeredness is going to kill us. He tells us there seems to be nothing on our own we can do about it. And then he uses the literary device by waving a flag at us. He said, here's the how and why of it. In other words, listen up. We're going to tell you how we got around that dilemma. And then he tells us the same thing in different words four times in a row. Just bam, 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 bam. And here's what I believe he's telling us. I believe he's talking about the pattern and the stitch. Because you see, without divine intervention, my approach to every problem in my life Every situation in my life is, hmm, let me figure out that pattern so I'll know where to start stitching. There's a little problem there. Uh, I turned 63 last month, and I haven't figured out a pattern of my life correctly yet. <laughs> my best estimate is I've spent 40% of my waking hours trying to figure out the patterns of my life so I'll know where to start stitching. And I haven't figured out a single one correctly yet. My job is stitching. My job is that... Then that little spark of the divine in me that knows God's will in the right now and no other time to take that next stitch and leave the pattern up to my God. So the first thing Bill says is we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. And I believe that's just precisely the pattern and the stitch 
because God's in charge of the pattern. I've got less chance of figuring out the patterns in my life than a chimpanzee does mastering quantum physics. I simply cannot do it. I don't have the capacity. <clears throat> and by the way, he doesn't say, if I don't quit trying to figure out the patterns, if I don't quit playing God, I might not stay sober, or I might not get comfortable and spiritual. He says, it doesn't work. It's an impractical way to live life. It just flat won't get the job done. And that's exactly right. Um, a guy by the name of Frank Metz. Frank's been dead, I guess, 15 years now. And he'd been sober 35 years when he died. And, and I, I had just moved back to Louisville sober uh, in the early 80s. And, and Frank and I were talking one night. Frank, Frank left, uh, by the way, a $40 million estate that he had built all himself. And Frank and I were talking about that very thing one night. Frank said, you know, Don, not one single thing in my life has ever worked out the way I had it planned. That ability to keep on stitching when it looks like that God is just laying my pattern all asunder and that willingness not to quit but to keep on stitching and let God take the pattern where it is, that is the effective and practical way to live life. That's the way successful people, successful in every realm, in the spiritual realm, material realm, in every realm. That's the way they do it. Then Bill tells us the same thing in different words. He says, hereafter in this director of life, we're going to earn this drama of life, we're going to let God be the director. Uh, now, if I were going to be in a play, the director would give me a script. Now, what the script is, is that little spark of the divine in me that knows the next right thing. If I were going to be in that play and I look at the script and I say, man, if I say this and do these actions on stage, my character is going to look awful and the whole play is going to be a flop. And I start, and I start to ad lib. I will have chaos until I follow the script for the simple reason that the director has the power. Then God tells us the same thing again. We're going to let God be the principal and we're going to be the agent. I'm working for a guy. employer, employee. Guy takes me out and says, Don, I'm going to pick you back up at lunch. I want you to dig three holes over here. I want them to be right along that line. I want them to be a foot deep. I want them to be 18 inches in diameter. I want them to be two feet spread between them. Guy drives off. I get to look, and they don't belong over there. <laughs> Too rocky anyway. I'm going to dig them over here, and that's the wrong dimensions. I'm going to dig them to that. That guy comes back at lunch. I'm going to have chaos. And I'll have chaos until I dig them the way the guy, guy tells me to dig them for the simple reason. The boss has got the power and I don't. And then just in case you hadn't got it, God tells you again. says, God is the parent and we are the child. Kid will not eat the spinach, is not going to eat the spinach. If the parent is firm, and I have found my heavenly parent capable of remarkable firmness. <laughs> The kid will eat the spinach, or the kid will have chaos until he eats the spinach for the simple reason that the parents got the power and the kid doesn't. So until I'm willing to do that, until I'm willing to start stitching, following the script, listening to the boss, listening to my parent, I'm going to have chaos in my life. And then Bill drops in a sentence at the end of that little paragraph. That little paragraph, by the way, is on the bottom of page 62. little sentence that's awfully easy to overlook. He says, this simple concept, what we just talked about, is the keystone of the arch through which we walk to freedom. Holds the whole thing together. 
just that simple idea of our actions doing it that way. Um, when I went to do an inventory, I didn't want to do an inventory. I thought uh, I might want to write the story of my life. Uh, uh, I couldn't see how on earth that garbly goop from page 64 through 70 could do anything about my life. I have found out that the effectiveness of inventory is when I accept that I can't take my inventory. You know, when I first approached the fourth step, that was not the beginning of me thinking about myself. Uh, in fact, I had never found any subject nearly as interesting as me all of my life. I spent much of my energy obsessing on what makes me tick, what's wrong with me. In other words, trying to take my inventory. So I can't take my inventory. But when I came as a little child, or tried to, now, if you keep waiting until you feel like coming as a little child, it may not ever happen. But when you're willing to act like a person would act, if they truly did feel like coming as a little child, you get the magic just the same. When I went through that fourth step by just following the dots, not trying to figure me out and understanding, and to me this is very important, the fourth step and none of these steps are a psychological exercise. If psychology could have been effective against alcoholism, it would have been stamped out decades ago. They also are not based on merit. This deal is based on grace. And what is so very important is my willingness to follow directions. And for me, the fourth step is like a child doing a follow-the-dots picture, where the child doesn't know what the picture is going to be, but if the child will take the action, will draw the line to this dot and that dot, and so on, it will emerge. Uh, and I believe that uh, I believe that is how the fourth step is effective for us is when we come to it that way. We're going to talk uh, tonight, Bob and I are, about living sober, but you know my daily reprieve is the same way. Uh, I want my daily reprieve to be contingent on how I am. I want to get to a spot where I wake up every morning. I done got my daily reprieve on account of how I am. You know, I got a good spiritual condition. And I'll talk about it tonight in 10, 11, and 12. Our daily reprieve is not based on how we are. Our daily reprieve is based on the action we take that day. And we'll talk about that tonight. And I love you all, and thank you for, for putting that up with me.